Hey guys, it's the What If Podcast. My name's Spencer. Uh, Ryan's not here yet, but um, he's doing okay. For those of you that uh, don't follow us on social media, I don't think we've actually said it here on the show yet, but um, Ryan's dad passed away a couple weeks ago, which is why he hasn't been on the show recently. Um, But he'll be back soon enough, and... He's doing, uh, you know, as well as you can do in a time like that. So um, he and I both and his family appreciate all the, the love you guys have been showing on in the Facebook group and all over social media, leaving us voicemails, emails, all that. Much appreciated. We love all you guys. And, uh, yeah, he'll be back when he can be back. So this week um, I am up north as we say here in Minnesota, uh, spending some time on the shores of Lake Superior. Um, and I want to talk about all the weird shit that has happened and continues to happen on Lake Superior over the last, uh, like, honestly, hundreds of years. Um, before that, even though it's just me today, I'm going to do my own joy. My joy for the week... Um, it's sort of twofold, but they're related. One is running because it's still nice outside, but now it's fall. And so it's like cool and running doesn't suck nearly as much as it does during the summer when it's 90 degrees running and listening to today. It was the, uh, this is Miley Cyrus, excuse me. This is Miley Cyrus playlist on Spotify, which fucking bangs. Um, and two related to that is, Making goals and holding myself to them. The last two weeks in a row, I have run 25 miles, which is a lot for me and uh, not a thing I was sure I'd be able to do, but I've stuck to it and I've done it two weeks in a row. So that's tight. Um, Okay. Weird shit on Lake Superior. So there's, I mean, probably the most common stories about, uh, Mysteries, unexplained phenomena on Lake Superior relate to shipwrecks or missing ships, Um, primarily because it is the largest, uh, in terms of surface area, the largest lake in the world and holds three quadrillion gallons of water, which makes up uh, about 10% of the entire world's freshwater surface, if that makes sense. Um, And over the past couple hundred years, roughly 10,000 ships have sank or disappeared. Um, Well, that's over. That's all, all of the great lakes. Um, But a lot of those are in Lake Superior as it's a common shipping route and it's enormous, and has some really rough weather uh, for most of the year. And of those 10,000, only about 3,000 have been found and or identified. Um, but I actually want to talk primarily about UFOs and sort of as a continuation of the episode Rob and I did last week. Uh, about the 1952 UF, uh, UFO flap in the United States that sort of culminated with the Washington, D.C. 
uh, UFO incidents. In 1953, a two people actually died slash disappeared while pursuing a UFO. Excuse me, while pursuing a UFO over Lake Superior. So on the evening of November 23rd, 1953, I'm going to try something a little different tonight. Um, It's going to be like story time with Uncle Spencer around the campfire up north on Lake Superior. So we'll try and make it uh, a little extra spooky. So on November 23rd, 1953, Air Defense Command ground intercept radar operators at South St. Marie in Michigan, spotted an unidentified target moving at roughly 500 miles per hour over Lake Superior. And they sent a an F, F-89 Scorpion fighter jet out to intercept it from Kinross Air Force Base, which is on like the far eastern edge of the Upper Peninsula in Michigan. So it's like the very northeast corner of Michigan. And the object that was spotted on radar was about 160 miles, 165 miles northwest of Kinross Air Force Base, which puts you pretty much dead center of Lake Superior. So they send out this jet with uh, a man named Felix Moncla, piloting and radar operator Robert L. Wilson. So there are two of them on board. And at the time of the flight, uh, I'm not sure about Wilson, but Monclo was pretty experienced as a pilot and had over 800 hours of flight time um, with a good chunk of that being in the F-89 Scorpion that he was flying that night. So for about 30 minutes, he flies in pursuit of this unidentified aircraft uh, traveling over 500 miles an hour. And his radar operator, Robert Wilson, had a difficult time tracking the object on the jet's radar. So they were getting uh, pretty constant radio communication from ground radar operators getting directions to the object so they can intercept it. And those radar operators watched their returns as this F-89 eventually intercepts the unidentified aircraft at about 8,000 feet up in the air over the middle of Lake Superior. And on their screens, they see the two radar blips merge, like completely overlap each other, and then the F-89's radar signature disappears. And after that, they're unable, they were unable to reestablish contact of any kind, radio or radar contact, with the F-89. And over the next couple minutes, the radar showed the unidentified object veering off and vanishing off their radar screens. So the, the U.S. Air Force, as this was one of their planes and one of their pilots and one of their radar operators... They conduct a search, and they send out two, two more uh, fighters to the area where this F-89 disappeared off their radar. And those two fighters call, gave several, several radio calls, hoping that they could uh, 
reestablish contact with Monko's F-89. And when those attempts failed, they were returned back to their base, who then informed the Coast Guard that a U.S. Air Force fighter was down in Lake Superior. So where this gets weirder is in the U.S. Air Force's uh, version of events. So they're unable to find any sort of wreckage or any real clues as to what might have happened. And they deliver a, a press release to the Associated Press stating that the vanished jet was, quote, followed by radar until it merged with an object 70 miles off of uh, hmm, Keweenaw Point in Upper Michigan. So they gave that to the AP. It's run in multiple papers, including the Chicago Tribune, um, who ran with the headline, Jet to Aboard Vanishes Over Lake Superior. Soon after that, the Air Force runs makes a, a second statement contradicting the original story. And this new statement says that the ground control radar operator who initially reported this UFO had misread the radar return. And the aircraft that the F-89 intercepted was actually a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 that was flying for some reason, 30 miles off course. And so obviously they didn't, I mean, my first thought was, okay, so they crashed into each other, but then that doesn't make sense because they saw one of the objects continue uh, on radar after the F-89 had disappeared. And the Air Force explained that by saying Lieutenant Moncla probably stricken with vertigo, crashed into the lake while returning to base after intercepting the Canadian C-47. Which makes no sense because if you have vertigo, you're not flying fighter jets in the Air Force. And probably, like, you don't just... There's no evidence to support the claim that he had vertigo and that's why he crashed into the lake. And also, the Canadian Air Force uh, refuted the U.S. Air Force's account and said that they had no flights in anywhere near that area that night. So we have the uh, we have something that smells of of cover up going already. Um. One of the Air Force's reports, an aircraft accident report, uh, was released via a Freedom of, Freedom of Information Act. And in that, they have a section titled Conclusions, where they list five conclusions. One, the aircraft probably crashed in the Canadian waters of Lake Superior just prior to or at the time of interception, meaning when it intercepted the uh, whatever the other object was. Um, according to that report, 
That would have been 6.51 p.m. Two, the ground control intercept station had been vectoring the aircraft to intercept an unidentified aircraft. So again, contradicting the Canadian C-47 story. Uh, Three, the ground control intercept station maintained radar contact with both the interceptor and the unidentified aircraft until the time of interception. Four, interception technique, communications, aircraft maintenance, or pilot's experience apparently were not cause factors in the accident. I'm not sure how they're arriving at that conclusion and why it's apparent. Um... Also, I'm not sure if that would rule necessarily rule out the um, the claim about uh, Moncla experiencing vertigo. I guess that that wouldn't technically be the pilot's experience causing that. And then five instrument flying conditions prevailed during the time of interception and could be a cause factor of the accident. Um, there was some inclement weather that night it was snowing on and off visibility was not great um so moncla likely would have been flying uh at least for portions of that flight purely by instruments so in that same report uh david c collins a captain in the u.s air force said quote I talked to the pilot of the aircraft that was being intercepted by the F-89 at the time of the disappearance of the, uh, of the F-89. The aircraft being intercepted was a Royal Canadian Air Force Dakota C-47 on a flight from Winnipeg to Sudbury, Canada. Now, in addition to the contradictions both in this report and from the Canadian Air Force, who said they had no planes in the area that night. The top speed of a C-47 was 229 miles per hour, which is less than half the speed that the unknown aircraft was shown to be moving on radar. So this explanation really makes no sense, and nowhere in here is it offered why they needed to send a jet out to intercept this alleged Canadian aircraft. Like, why do you need multiple fighter jets out to go intercept a Canadian? If you know that it's a Canadian Air Force craft, why do you need to go intercept it? Also in that report, uh, Lieutenant William A. Mingenbach claimed in an official statement to the Air Force that he heard Felix Monkla on the radio sometime between 7.35 and 7.50 on the night of November 23rd, 1953, which is uh, 45 to 55, almost an hour later than the F-89 disappeared from radar. It disappeared at 6.51, and... Lieutenant Mingenbach is saying he heard uh, Moncla on the radio between sometime between 7.35 and 7.50. And all he was able to make out or all he remembered hearing was Moncla saying, quote, I think we better, which is 
super cryptic. But again, this one is even stranger because that then means after he was off radar and after he stopped responding to ground control, he was still on his radio with someone for another 45 to 60 minutes, which doesn't make much sense at all. So the plane has never, never shown up, never been found, which is not terribly surprising given that uh, Lake Superior is enormous and conditions are often terrible. Um, There are some thousands of ships that have never been found in that lake. But in 1968, so 15 years later, um, a story ran in the Sioux Daily Star, October of 68, about two prospectors who claimed to find claimed to have found parts of a jet, including the tail section. And the U.S. Air Force confirmed, apparently, that the parts that these guys found came from a military jet, but it was never confirmed that it was Felix Moncla's F-89 or even an F-89. There was never any reporting about if they were able to determine what type of aircraft it was, um, what type it was. Also, so these these parts were found um, on the Canadian side of Lake Superior, and the Canadian government claims to have no record of this find. Um, it was really only reported in this one newspaper, as far as I can tell. And then, um, some 40-odd years later, almost 40 years later, in August of 2006, a an email from someone calling themselves Preston Miller was sent to a UFO researcher, and this email had a uh, an alleged quote from an AP story claiming that a Michigan-based diving company had found the F-89 at the bottom of Lake Superior, um, roughly in the location where it had disappeared off of radar. And this group, this company, diving company, was called the Great Lakes Diving Company. And this email and the the AP article um, made the rounds on UFO boards and websites. And um, people tried to get in touch with this Great Lakes Diving Company to verify the story to get images, just more information. And they ended up getting in touch with someone named Adam Jimenez, who claimed to be the spokesperson for the Great Lakes Diving Company. And he ended up doing an interview with Linda Moulton Howe on Coast to Coast at one point. However, the Great Lakes Diving Company was not a real company. Um, And any attempt to verify the 
anything about Adam Jimenez uh, turned up nothing. And the only thing anyone was able to find uh, was an email address and a cell phone number. But shortly, like within weeks after this supposed discovery and the interview on Coast to Coast, uh, the company's website disappeared and Adam Jimenez stopped responding to emails and phone calls. They did provide um, two images that show a like um, an airplane. They're, uh, what is it called? They're like the, the radar that lets you look at the bottom of lakes like to find fish and stuff, but a fancier kind, whatever those are called. And it showed... The outline of a like intact airplane that appeared to have a similar shape to an F-89. And then there was a second image that showed some sort of disc uh, partially buried into the uh, into the bottom of the, the lake nearby. Now, obviously, this whole thing ended up to be end up being a hoax, but the the uh those two images were evaluated by damn it someone who does that shit for a living i can't find the guy's name now but he thought that the images were legit um in terms of like they didn't appear to be doctored maybe there are other airplanes i'm sure there are planes on the bottom of lake superior um there are probably rock formations or other things that are roughly disc shaped on the bottom of Lake Superior. Um, but anyway, this Adam Jimenez and Great Lakes Diving Company thing end up being a complete hoax. Which, how many fucking times has Linda Moulton Howe been had in situations like this? I feel like if you ever want to hoax anything paranormal, all you have to do is call Linda Moulton Howe. And book an interview. Tell her she's going to be on TV or the radio, and she will vouch for literally anything at this point. Um, so that's sort of the, the basic idea of this, uh, what's typically called the Kinross UFO incident. It reminded me, though, of a story we heard a few years ago now uh, from Mike Knox, who we interviewed early on. In the show, uh, I think, well, I know we met him at a MUFON uh, meeting at the, I think it was the Shoreview Community Center in, in Minnesota. Uh, maybe this would have been like 2017. Um, and he had all kinds of wild stories that include being abducted and healed by aliens but we interviewed Mike in episode 32, and he talked about um, being in the military as a radar operator stationed in Duluth, which is on Lake Superior, in the 60s. And he claims to have sighted a UFO on radar and made... A report about it to a general. Um, so I'm actually going to run his version of that story real quick because I think it's it was fascinating to me at the time, but 
now going back through all of the weird stories about UFOs and other unexplained stuff um, on and around Lake Superior, and especially during, you know, in the 50s and 60s, um, I think it's worth revisiting. In this next segment, we're going to move into Mike describes his time in the Air Force in more detail, uh, what kinds of things he was working on, and then eventually some of the things that he saw and re-recorded during his time in the Air Force. Yeah, so just just, I guess, like a quick primer to add on to that. Mike is originally from Tennessee, as he said. He was born on a hill in uh, Knoxville. In Knoxville. but for a significant portion of his time with the Air Force, he was stationed in the Midwest, which included time uh, in Duluth, which, yeah. for those that don't know, is a, a city in northern Minnesota, uh, right on the bottom left nodule of Lake Superior, <laughs> if you will, um, and and interacted with a lot of the radar systems in Michigan and Minnesota. And up into Canada. Up into Canada as well. So um, he... he he tells some uh, pretty interesting stories here about his experience uh, working in that field and in that location uh, at that time. My primary job was talking to interceptors, was working with an officer and figuring out his what they call the air mass problem, okay. which means I was helping him figure out his intercept and how to set the the interceptors up to go out and shoot down the target. Of course, it was practice. So we really didn't shoot anybody down because they're buddies with the targets. Mm. And then we'd switch off. But I was that's what I was doing. And my main job was to keep the logs, was to handle the computer because the computer we had wasn't like this. It had a five-second lag time in the, when the information went through. We could handle 150 tracks that's all 150 tracks and it was slow as molasses <laughs> but to a kid out of tennessee yeah. in 1966 my god this was star wars yeah, yeah. i mean Any it was great and you had a you had your regular situation display and then you had your information display and the mine was this one his was that one and you had the map of the area that you're in and the specific fighter squadrons. We had six fighter squadrons. We had uh, two B-52 bases at uh, Grand Forks and K.I. Sawyer. Yeah, K.I. Sawyer. And then uh, we had that one Beaumark site. And there were other things around that we didn't deal with. Uh, There was the missile ring around Minneapolis, and there was the underground communications of the Navy up all the way across the northern part of the United States using that big iron slab as their as their uh, antenna mm. to talk to submarines, and it's ultra low frequency because it's very very long. All right. The, the antenna has to be about half of the width of the wave, and wow. the wave, and we're talking hundred miles, hundred fifty mm. miles. So you've got a huge wave that is so broad that it cuts through the water just like it's not there. And mm-hmm. that's the way they've been talking submarines forever, at least since the since 70s. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Since the 70s. Wow. But 
that's the environment that I worked in, and it was all the Cold War, and it was all preparing for Russians to come in and blow the hell out of us. Sure. But it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and they knew it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> At least that's what I said when I was 18. Yeah. And later yeah. I wondered, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was working two F-102s over Houghton in Michigan. Mm -hmm. We got a call. These two guys are down here doing their thing, and they're pretty well doing it by themselves. I mean, they know what to do. Mm -hmm. The the in, the uh, officer I had was a lieutenant, uh, first lieutenant. He had been in, in Thailand, so he had some experience. So he was pretty, pretty cool about anything I said to him. He was... Yeah, okay, we'll try that. But when I turned to him and I said, I'm going to take this call, and I reached down and turned my switch and had my microphone on and, and saw your high had called me. He said, Majority, saw your high. Saw your high, go ahead. It's Majority. He says, yeah. He said, can you guys uh, see that uh, 727 out over Lake Superior? It's a... It's a, a uh, Northwestern. It's flying from Detroit to Winnipeg, and it has a full complement of passengers. I don't know how many, 50, 60, something like that, but it was right over Lake Superior. It was north of the peninsula, up on almost the Canadian side, yeah. going that way, 35,000 feet. The pilot called in to Iron Mountain, Michigan, to the radio station. Now, a radio station is what civilian pilots use when they're non-commercial. They call in there to get the weather, to file uh, VFR flight plans because they're going to be flying around and mm -hmm. they just want somebody to know where they are or to report emergencies or strange stuff. This guy was not under positive control. He was flying like they did in the old days. He was on the radio to center, but they didn't have control on him because he they didn't have radar. We had the radar, and that was strictly Air Defense Command. Mm. And they said, do you see him? And I says, give me his position again. Mm -hmm. And there was only one plane out there. I mean, it's sitting right out in the middle. And um, I said, okay. I said, uh, tell the radio guy to get him to uh, squawk standby. So he did. Boop. Squawk flash. Boop. Almost normal. We got a positive uh, contact. Uh, I see him. Northwest, whatever the call sign was, 35,000 mm -hmm. feet. And uh, I, everything was in my digital right there. And he said, well, he says, do you see something else there? He said, and they were the two controllers down in Farmington were giggling. Do you see a, uh, another object real close to that plane? And I says, negative. I said, if they're that close, you're not going to see them. He said, well, he said, they say they've got a disc. And this was about 2 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. It was daylight. Yeah, They've got a disc passing over the wings, dipping and diving, coming at them from the front. Everybody on the plane sees it, and they're freaking out. And he said, would you please watch it, and I will call you when he says that the craft is breaking away. Hmm. 
or if something else happens, you keep an eye on them. And I said, okay. So I took the grease pencil and I tapped on the scope and the officer looked at me and I went, UFO. <laughs> and he went, <laughs> and I said, yeah, I said, that's what you said. And he said, well, I heard them talking. I didn't know what they were talking about. So I, I'm monitoring this and I'm talking to Sawyer Hive once in a while because that's who was, that guy was in their area. Mm-hmm. And, um, about eight minutes later, they called me and they said, okay, he's breaking south. That's all they said. And I looked. I just touched it with my finger and I looked at the officer. And I looked. And here's the 727. And all of a sudden, there was a blip, blip, mm. blip, blip, blip. And it was diminishing. So it was raw. It had no associated IFF, SIF. No transponder, nothing except what we called processed raw data because it had gone through the computer and it was a simulation, but it was correlated. And it wouldn't have shown up until it broke away because otherwise you would too just close. be getting one. Yeah. Too close. And, and it was overwhelmed by the electronics emissions of the, right. of the other aircraft. Right. Sure. And that, which is good for him, you know. I mean, and but he just, was going it, down or he was going up. We couldn't tell which one because we did not have him positively ID'd. Mm-hmm. And if we'd had him positively ID'd, I had him for eight times, which is five seconds, which is about 40 seconds. Okay. And then it just disappeared. And it was gone. I think it probably went down the lake. When it first mm-hmm. started, the the lieutenant said, and he, was, he became a buddy of mine, he said uh, to the pilot, uh, Mike Lehman Zero One, um, are you guys interested in going up and checking out a UFO out in the middle of Lake Superior? And you could hear the guy cussing under his breath. And he says, no, we're not going out there. We do not get feet wet. Uh, they don't like to fly over Lake Superior. If you have to ditch out there, you're dead. Right. Now, here's where it gets fun. That, that wasn't this, fun? I was going to say, Mike, we've been having fun already. I'm this gets fun. over here. Like, this gets fun. 60 people on a Northwest Airlines flight seeing a UFO isn't fun? <laughs> I, got, I got up, and I went over, and the Army captain, who was sitting at his scope, he was the interface between us and the um, Nike ring down at the uh, fairground because that's where they had their center. Mm-hmm. You said Nike ring? Yeah. What does that stand for? Nike is the um, type of missile that the Army used for uh, anti-air okay. uh, bombers. Okay. And they had four of them. One was over at Bethel. One was at St. Michael. There was another one and another one around the cities. Got it. And then the control center was at the fairground. And this is for... Protection of the Twin Cities? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did he still exist? No. Okay. No. So the, but this this is still in the late or late sixties. Um mid sixties. Mid sixties. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, this army guy says to me, Mike, boy, you guys were making a lot of noise over there. What was going on? <laughs> and I sat down and I told him. And he said, What do you mean? And I took a grease pencil. And I'm going to just scope here. And I said, come here and sit down. He sat down, and I'm 
drawing it and showing him where everything was and telling him what was transpiring and talking about the guys talking to me and going through the whole thing. I mean, it was, it was just, it was normal for me as far as the way I handled it. But I was very excited because it was really cool. And it was, <laughs> it was one of the highlights of my military stuff that sure. I was doing. He said, I want you to stay right here. He said, I'll be back in five minutes. He comes back. That's always got, an ominous thing to say. <laughs> he's got <laughs> move. He's got a the youngest full bird colonel I'd ever seen. Now the guy was gray headed, but he would look very young. He wasn't in his early forties. I mean, he was a fairly young guy. Hmm. And I didn't see him, but I saw the I saw the the captain came in. In his army uniform, and he sat down, and he says, um, Mike, this is Colonel so-and-so. And I turned, and as I turned, he put his hand on me and said, Mike, I understand you've got something you want to talk to me about. <laughs> and he pulled up his chair next to me, and he says, okay, tell me what happened. And I did. I laid it out, just boom, 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 just like I did for you guys. Yeah. And he said, now, here's what I need. And he had a piece of paper in a little notebook, and he's writing down specific needs. I need to know the two controllers, the alpha and the lead at Farmington. I need to know who those guys were that were that were Sawyer High, which is a identifier for guys at Farmington, Minnesota, in the FAA. I need to know who the uh, flight service officer was out at the radio up at um, up on the peninsula. Mm-hmm. I need to know the ETA of the flight, the flight numbers. I said, I've already got that stuff. I need to find out the pilot's name, that kind of information. Yeah. So I just picked up the phone and put my headset on, and I had another phone, a NORAD line, and I called the numbers I needed to call, and I talked to Sawyer High, and I just told them in the blind, I said, I need to know who the controllers were or who you guys, what you guys' names are. I've said, I've got a intel guy here that's looking for that stuff and he said so i'm i'm talking i got it all we wrapped it up in a nice neat little form and everything was cool he says okay he said i'm gonna finish up here he picked up the phone and then he dialed a number on the norad line which was a phone line system that was only for military Air Force, Navy, Marines were all on it, but civilians weren't on it. Mm -hmm. And they just picked it up, and he just went, and he said, uh, yeah, this is uh, Colonel so-and-so at uh, Duluth. I need to talk to Bob, whatever. Is he there? Yeah, just a minute. Hey, Bob, this is Jim. (laughs) Yeah, listen, I need for you to have a team go down to the airport at Winnipeg. And we've got an aircraft coming in, ETA, in about 20 minutes. When they hit the tarmac, you need to get all those people, including the personnel that worked on the plane, into a room and debrief them. It might take you several hours, but we need to find out exactly what they saw. It's one of those deals. And the conversation was you know, very friendly. And he finished. He got off and he said, 
that's a friend of mine that's an intelligence officer at an army, um, um, Canadian Army missile site. And they are going to cover it for us. They're going to go down and debrief them, find out what's going on. He said, Mike, you did a wonderful job. You handled it perfectly. So when you say debrief, they were trying to get information from they the passengers? They were just going to talk to them, all of them. Okay. Everybody on that plane was going to get juiced. They were going to find out what happened. Huh. And he he wasn't trying to cover it up. I mean, he right. you know, he was very, very kind. Um, something happened maybe four or five years ago, and they're they're coming to get me. <laughs> four, four, four or five years ago, too much. <laughs> something, something. They do sound close, don't they? There's probably somebody shot somebody over here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about better help. If there's something that is making you unhappy or keeping you from reaching your goals, or if you're just generally feeling stressed out and anxious, uh, you should check out BetterHelp. BetterHelp can assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist who you can connect with online, over the phone, uh, through their app. It only takes about 24 hours before you can start communicating with them. And it's not self-help. It's a real, live, professional counselor who's there to help you. Um, you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus you can schedule a weekly video or phone session all without ever having to leave your home. Um, and I know when I was starting therapy by far, the hardest part was, well, the two hardest parts were working up the courage to make that first appointment and then finding a therapist that worked for me and felt right and felt like somebody that I could, just trust and have a conversation with um better help eliminates all of those hurdles it's super easy to get started you can do it at your own pace at your own convenience and they make it incredibly easy to switch counselors at any time for any reason if the one you have just isn't working for you um, they have licensed professional counselors who specialize in stress anxiety anger lgbt matters self-esteem trauma and almost anything else you can think of and anything you share with them is strictly confidential so right now you can start living a happier life by going to betterhelp.com slash what if to get 10% off your first month of therapy again that's betterhelp.com slash what if for 10% off your first month So that's Mike's story. Um, I, I re-listened to it now for the first time since whatever that would have been three years ago. Um, and I find it a little bit harder to believe now than I did then. Uh, you guys get, get to hear Ryan and me be, uh, I guess, maybe a little more naive or a little less jaded than at least I am now Uh 200 episodes into this shit. But there are some like very strong similarities to what's 
talked about in this Kinross incident. Um, I think Ryan brought up a good point at the time that we should, probably should have done, but still could do of there should be some ways to maybe verify at least parts of that story. Um, at least in as far as, you know, did, was Mike actually there at that time? Um, was there a Northwest flight that would have been flying that route? Like some, some parts of that story we could at least verify, but yeah, I, I, I have a hard time. If you go back and listen to that episode and some of the experiences that Ryan and I had with Mike outside of that, just that interview, um, I don't find a lot of what he says to be super believable, but there are a lot of stories like this. Um, I, I don't know. There's got to be something going on um, more than just people telling stories, especially when you've got, in the case of the the Kinross one, you've got some official reports and you've got people that, for whatever reason, definitely disappeared that night. Um, moving away from directly UFO-related stuff and taking a step a little farther into the... Uh, or I guess a little farther away from the believable and documented side of things. Um, there are some folks along the North shore of Lake Superior, specifically in Grand Marais, which is about a 30 minute drive from where I am right now that, uh, believe in some way wilder things. There is a, a woman named Christine day who lives in Grand Marais, Minnesota who calls herself the Pleiadian ambassador. And uh, she channels the, quote, energy of Nordic aliens from the Pleiades. <laughs> this is, uh, I found this mostly sourced from one article um, from City Pages, which is our local Twin Cities, like, alt-weekly paper. Uh, this is from March of last year, 2019. And Christine Day believes that she is in direct contact with the Pleiadians. And she has a very positive view of the Pleiadians, which is that they honor humans' free will. They want to help us. Um, she also says that the Greys used to abduct people, but there was a galactic a galactic federation treaty that outlawed it 10 years ago. So in 2009, I guess. Um, and she says that reptilians may have warred with the Palladians in the past, but they don't anymore. So from her home in Grand Marais, Christine books retreats for people who want to communicate with the Palladians. And she believes that there are galactic portals on her property in Grand Marais. And she charges people just $450 to join her in communicating with the Pleiadians. So this started uh, about 20 years ago when Christine was living near Mount Shasta studying healing touch. And she claims to, while walking near Mount Shasta one day, 
She claims to have encountered a spaceship from which Nordic aliens, those are the tall, pretty blonde ones, typically, uh, Nordic aliens emerged and telepathically told her uh, some things about the world and the universe and about how the Pleiadians and the Nordics were going to help us humans reach a higher vibration. And she claims, in addition to having this telepathic contact, contact, that she is actually a descendant of these Nordic aliens, a.k.a. Pleiadians. Um, and she has written several, I think, three books about them. Um, and considers herself, quote, considers herself a conduit. The channeling shit is always hella suspect to me. Um, but if you want to check out her books, they're all available on both in paperback and on Amazon Kindle. There's one, the most recent one, uh, is called The Pleiadian Promise, A Guide to Attaining Group Mind, Claiming Your Sacred Heritage, Ooh. And Activating Your Destiny. That's from 2017. Uh, there's one from 2013 called Pleiadian Principles for Living, A Guide to Accessing Dimensional Energies, Communicating with the Pleiadians, and Navigating These Changing Times. Oh boy, Christine. Wait until you hear about 2020. And then the OG Pleiadian channeling, Pleiadian Initiations of Light, a guide to energetically awaken you to the Pleiadian prophecies for healing and resurrection. Wow. That's tight. So anyway, uh, Christine lives on the North Shore and charges people $450 to talk to aliens. And she claims that in 2013, when she was working on her second book, the Pleiadians guided her out of the wilderness. She was... Uh, she was staying on the Gunflint Trail, which is a very uh, remote part of northern Minnesota. They guided her, the, the Pleiadians, guided her out of the wilderness to a house um, on three acres of land right along Lake Superior, which happened to be for sale. And there were spaceships there. And I don't know if at the telepathic direction of the aliens or on her own, uh, Christine built some stone circles on the beach near the house and some light emerged from Lake Superior, which created a portal for the aliens. So now she has this direct line of contact to the aliens through a portal underneath Lake Superior, which happens to be in her backyard. Anyway, uh, in reading about all this wacky shit, I did find a couple like actual verifiable weirdnesses, weird weirdities about uh, Lake Superior and the surrounding area. One of which is the area between Duluth and Grand Marais. So, if you look at a map of Minnesota, uh, Lake Superior borders Minnesota on sort of like the the northeast corner. Um, so Duluth is at like the very southern tip of that, and Grand Marais is probably, oh, I don't know, 
a hundred or so miles, eh, maybe more, maybe like 200 miles, um, Northeast of that, but like straight along the shore, 110 miles straight along the, the shore of Lake Superior. So this is like a 110 mile stretch of, uh, the Lake Superior coast. So anyway, in this 110 mile stretch, the FAA warns pilots of a magnetic anomaly of 18 degrees, which is caused by iron deposits uh, in that area. And surveyors who many, many years ago um, had a really hard time dividing the land into like equal gridded plots um, because there's so much magnetic iron in the ground that compasses don't work the way they're supposed to. And there are apparently, this is still according to the, uh, the city pages article by Susan do um, apparently there are early maps of this area that show seven sided parcels, which were supposed to be square because they had such a hard time just mapping, using compasses to map that area. Um, she also talked to a guy named Brian Larson, um, who is the editor of the News Herald in Grand Marais. And he claims that, quote, most people who've lived in Grand Marais long enough have seen UFOs. When you see them and they fly in straight lines and they go as fast as you can see, I'm not saying they're from outer space, but when you're 17 and you're on a skating rink and you've got 50 people all looking at the same thing, you're going, huh. So apparently, if you spend enough time in Grand Marais, guaranteed UFOs. Also, this is uh, not fun at all, but in the 80s, I think, yeah, 1982 in Grand Marais, a woman actually died while looking for UFOs after spending a month parked parked down by the lake looking for UFOs. She, uh, Laverne Landis, and her partner in this UFO hunt, Gerald Flatch, um, ran out of food and ran out of water, and Laverne eventually froze to death. Um while looking for UFOs in Grand Marais. Gerald Flatch said that he had been receiving messages through Laverne Landis from, quote, some higher power, and that their most recent message directed them to go to the end of the Gunflint Trail and await further messages. That is a an incredibly remote area the the end of the gunflint trail uh stops at the boundary wires canoe area which is i don't know how big uh enormous and is 
completely natural. There's nothing. There are no buildings. There is no, well, there wouldn't have been an 82 anyway, but even now there's no cell service. Uh, you can't even have motorized boats in there. Um, yeah, 1 million acres. Jesus. So there were people even in the 80s who believed strongly enough that they were communicating with aliens uh, to spend a month outdoors in November, which is cold as shit up there. Uh, well, cold enough to freeze to death, obviously. Um, looking for UFOs. And then I couldn't find a, a further source uh, for this, but in this City Pages article from last year, uh, they claim that a guy named Seth Jeffs, who was a literal cult leader, they call it a, quote, polygamist sec sect, um, was found out to be forcing children into marriage and had purchased a 40-acre plot of land to build a 6,000-square-foot compound for his cult in Grand Marais. Um, and the permits had been approved. I think... I don't think any of this stuff was built before he was found out and uh, arrested, thankfully. But you've got... Like, Grand Marais, I don't... It's not big. Uh, I mean, the population is probably... Uh, yeah, 1,300 people live in Grand Marais. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's almost to Canada. It's on Lake Superior. And you've got UFOs. You've got cults. You've got people channeling Pleiadians. Is fucking crazy. So I'll let you guys know if I uh, communicate with any Pleiadians, if I see any weird lights over the lake. And uh, if you don't hear from me, you can assume that I've either joined a cult or uh, the Pleiadians got me. Love you guys. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, Ryan will be back soon. Again, thank you guys for for sending all the love through he's uh he and i and his family and everyone else is very appreciative uh we love you guys we'll see you next week